As we open God's word this morning, I invite you to please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would please be with us this morning as we open your holy and inspired and inerrant word. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would teach us what you would have, and may we leave today more resolved to walk rightly according to the word of Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, many people throughout history have made claims to be prophets of God. We have many of them recorded in the scriptures for us, but there are also others that you can find in the annals of history who made a claim to be a prophet. And the question is put forward then, how do we know uh, who a prophet is? How do we know that someone has been truly called by God? Well, we need to test the prophet. We need to test whether they are true. And we have such a test that God gave to ancient Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And it's a test that still applies today to those who would claim to be a prophet of God. God wrote this in Deuteronomy 18, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. He says, he goes on, it says, if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. A simple test. A prophet gives a word, gives a prediction, and you see if it comes true. If it doesn't come true, that man is not a prophet. He says, do not be afraid of him. He's spoken presumptuously. And in fact, the consequence is that the Lord commanded in Old Testament Israel that that prophet should die. And so if the prophets don't come true, it's a failed prophet. It's a simple test. But the consequences, the results are monumental. And so if someone comes on the scene claiming to be a prophet of God, this simple test should be applied. And so, for example, this should have been done and can be done to Joseph Smith, who is the founder of Mormonism. He made several claims of special revelation from God. He claimed he was visited by the Father and the Son in New York in 1820. He claimed an angel appeared to him and showed him the Book of Mormon on golden plates, which he translated into English. But of all these things, he claimed to be a prophet of God. He believed that he would continue to receive fresh revelations from the Lord, and he gave a prophecy, several prophecies throughout his lifetime. But all of them proved to be false. And therefore, according to the prophet, the, the, the test of a prophet in Deuteronomy, he is a false prophet. Let me just give you three examples. First is in 1830, he predicted that a temple would be built for the Mormons in Zion, Missouri, within his generation. That plot of land still is empty today. Or take 1836, he claimed that God told him that Salem, Massachusetts, would be given into the hands of the Mormon church and there would, in that city, would be found much treasure for the Mormon church. But the city never transferred into the hands of the Mormons and there was never any treasure found there. 
And finally, in 1843, he predicted that the U.S. government would be overthrown in a few years. But again, as we know, that never happened. And so this is a simple test that God gives us. If a man gives some prophecies, we see if they came true. They don't. We don't have to be afraid of them. They're not a true prophet of God. But let's turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He claimed to be a prophet sent from God. Does he pass the test of Deuteronomy? I'll begin in the affirmative. Yes, he does pass the test of Deuteronomy. He is a true prophet. And our passage that we have before us today is one of the best test cases for Jesus as a prophet. And so I invite you to turn in Luke chapter 21 with me. Luke chapter 21. We are in the middle of a little series called The End Times According to Jesus as we go through Luke chapter 21. This section of Scripture, as we've been saying, is traditionally known as the Olivet Discourse because it's a teaching given by Jesus, a discourse on the Mount of Olives or the Mount called Olivet, hence the Olivet Discourse. And in this, there are a number of different predictions that are given. We've looked at some of them so far. We're continuing to work our way through them to interpret, to see what is Jesus mean by these, these predictions that he gives. Today, we find ourselves in verses 20 through 24, but in order to give us a running start, we're going to read verses 5 through 7, and then I'll jump us to verse 20 and pick up there. So follow along as I read verses 5 through 7, and then verses 20 through 24. It says this, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And then jump down to verse 20. And when, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God bless its truths upon all our hearts. Well, as I stated earlier, this text of Scripture is one of the clearest predictions of the future that Jesus has given us. It's attested, its fulfillment is to test it, attested by many historical sources. And so, it is a prophecy by which we can test the truthfulness of our Lord. Upon examination, we are going to see in this passage, combined with the historical record of those who lived in that first century, that this passage gives us irrefutable evidence that of Jesus' veracity as a prophet of God. Jesus indeed was the true prophet, and this text helps us to see that. 
In this text, we're going to see that Jesus accurately prophesied about six specifics of the destruction of Jerusalem. Six specifics about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we need to see what Jesus says about the future and hold them up with the historical record. Did these actually take place in the way that he said? Again, to tip my hand, we, we're going to see that it does. Everything that he prophesied came true. And so let's, let's look at these six specifics that Jesus gives us, first of all, by seeing the signal of Jerusalem's destruction. Jesus first gives the signal of Jerusalem's destruction in verse 20. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, this teaching that we find ourselves, this all of a discourse, all began with a discussion about the temple, as we read in verses 5 through 7. The temple was the second temple that was built by the Jews when they returned from exile from Babylon, and they uh, built a humble temple, but then under Herod the Great, he revamped it significantly, and it became a wonderful, beautiful building. It was covered with gold on the eastern side, and the sight of it arrested all visitors to Jerusalem. They were stunned when they saw the beauty of the white Jerusalem stone and then the gold overlay as it reflected the sun. And yet it was this beautiful, majestic temple that Jesus declared would become desolate. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, Jesus says, your house has become desolate. The disciples were a bit surprised by this. And as they're leaving the temple and they're walking, they're like, hey, Jesus, you see this uh, temple looks pretty beautiful to me. Looks pretty imposing. This is a, a grand building. How could something so beautiful, so commanding be desolated, be destroyed? And so Jesus then doubles down on his prediction. As we uh, read in verse 6, he says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Oh, you want some clarity on what I mean by this house becoming desolate, this temple house? Well, let me tell you, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And so they then begin to ask, well, teacher, when will these things be? When can we expect these events to happen? And when will be the end of the age? And so their question, suppose that the destruction of, with the destruction of Jerusalem would come the end of the days, end of times, the end times. And so Jesus' answer interweaves both the destruction of Jerusalem and the end times events. And we've been trying to discern those as we go through it. But here in verses 20 through 24, Jesus finally answers the question, when will these stones be thrown down? And here he describes when exactly that'll happen. It'll happen in 70 AD, which he doesn't give the date in this passage, but he predicts what will take place. This event in 70 AD is really a preview of what is going to come in future days, what is going to come at the end of days, which is why Jesus gives the prophecy about a near term, 70 AD, and also in this passage gives prophecy of the far term, of the end of the age. He says, verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you can know. Then know that its desolation has come near. And so what is the signal that Jerusalem's destruction has come? It's going to be that when Jerusalem's surrounded. 
The word for armies here is the word that means military encampments. So not necessarily that there's got to be multiple armies for multiple nations, but that there's multiple military encampments that will surround Jerusalem. To be surrounded by a military means that it's under siege. That, that city is, is being besieged by the, the invading army. And a siege was a particular method of warfare in which the army would, would go around the city and block off all supplies to that city. No food can get in. If they can, they'll block off the water supply. And so this would bring the city to its knees because they would ultimately, eventually starve them out. And so the residents would be forced to surrender is the idea. Now at the time, I'm sure this idea that Jesus is saying that when Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it kind of seems like a different, distant possibility. I mean, Jesus, hasn't Jerusalem already been surrounded by armies at one point? I mean, that's part of our history as the Jewish nation. The, the armies of Babylon came and surrounded uh, the city and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city in 586. Surely it's not going to happen again, not with this grand temple, with this majestic city that we have. And even though there was tensions between the Romans and the Jews, they, they lived somewhat peaceably together. They found a way to make it work. And the Jews, there was a subset called the Zealots that were trying to do some uh, domestic terrorism, as it were, against the Romans. But by and large, the nation was, was looking to, to keep the peace. And yet Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. And according to his word, this is exactly what happened when Rome brought their armies to Jerusalem several decades later. Titus, the Roman general, built a stone wall all the way around the city. It says in a matter of three days, they were able to build this outer wall around the city and stationed guards all the way around it. And so it was watched. No one could go in, no one could go out. Food couldn't go in, food couldn't go out. Jesus says this would be the signal that Jerusalem would be desolated Desolation is a term used throughout the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, to describe the results of God's judgment upon a place. Desolation uh, refers to destruction. It refers to abandonment. You can think of a, a desolate place as, a, as a, a barren wasteland. That is what would come to Jerusalem, is that they would become a barren wasteland, abandoned by God, abandoned by people. Again, Jesus said that in Matthew 23 that, that this house would become desolate. And so Jesus here says that desolation is going to come when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem. That will be the signal. Now, there are those who take a preterist interpretation of this whole passage, this whole all of it discourse, and believe that everything that's found in this whole chapter was fulfilled in 70 AD, that there is no event spoken of here that will take place in a future day. They were all fulfilled. They're all historical to us. And they believe they take that because of a similarity of language, particularly at this point, where it says when there are... Uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know as desolation has come near. And then look at verse 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, they compare this verse with the verse found in Matthew 24 and in, and in Mark 13. And I've got a slide that shows this comparison of these words. Luke, Luke's words are there on the left that we've been looking at this morning. But then the words from Matthew 24 are on the right. So when you see 
not Jerusalem surrounded by armies, but this says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now you can see a similarity in language. He says, but when you see in both of them, and then he gives a indicator, a signal, and then he gives a similar instruction afterward, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. As I said at the beginning, I believe that this 70 AD uh, event is really a precursor, or preview of what is coming in the end. And so even though there's similarity of language, and I, we have to concede that, I don't believe they're talking about the same events. That the, the abomination of desolation that we've looked at in prior weeks in which this will take place in the 70th week of Daniel and it'll be posted up in the temple did not happen in 70 AD. Now, some will say that, well, the Romans put up their Roman standards of representing their Roman gods, but by the time that they did that, the city was already burning and desolated. There was no time to flee. They had actually already been mostly slaughtered. And yet, in that future week of Daniel that we looked at a few weeks ago will be the midpoint of the tribulation period in which the Antichrist will set himself up as a figure of worship, and that'll be at the three-and-a-half-year mark. And that, at that point, the tribulation will begin to intensify, and therefore there is time for them to flee the city and flee to the mountains. And so, while there is similarity, the similar structure, similar in, uh, instruction given, I believe that these are talking about two separate events. But again, it takes some discernment to try to understand what they are. There are two different signals. One about a time that is in the near future for Jesus, one that is in a distant future. And so there is a parallelism between the two events. There is a similarity. There is a correlation. But they're not identical. But the verse specific that Jesus gives here then in, in Luke tw uh, 21 verse 20 is that when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, then we can know its desolation has come near. And this was perfectly fulfilled as we saw. The Roman army came and surrounded Jerusalem. And from there, the end of the city was near. But there's a second specific that Jesus gives, and that is guidance in light of Jerusalem's destruction. He gave a signal of when it was going to happen, and then he gave guidance in light of the destruction. In verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So verse 21, Jesus then says, listen, it's desolation, it's destruction is coming near. Therefore, you need to flee. He gives his followers instructions that they need to flee at that point. Now, obviously, the, the Jewish world, the, the Jews that were opposed to Jesus wouldn't heed Jesus' instruction. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so these words then will be particularly for his disciples, for the church there in the first century. And so he tells them, listen, when you see armies coming around Jerusalem, it's time to get out of town. Now, typically, in ancient times, if there was an invading army and you needed safety, you would go to a walled city. That was the place that you could hold out. That was the place that you could find safety from an invading army. And so the natural tendency would be to flock into Jerusalem. But Jesus says, in this case, they need to steer clear of the city. If they're already in it, get out. If you're in the countryside, don't go into the city. He says to flee to the mountains. Interestingly, we see from the church historian Eusebius that 
The early church heeded Jesus' instruction. He records that when they saw the, the city of Jerusalem begin to be surrounded, the, the early Christians in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church fled the city and they, and they went into uh, Jordan, into what is modern day Jordan today, into the city of, of Pella. It's a region of ancient Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan, of uh, the Jordan River that is. And this was able to happen. You said, well, well, I thought you said that Titus set up a wall around and nobody could get out and that was built in three days. How did the Jerusalem church get out? Well, in the process of this conflict between Rome and Jerusalem, Rome and the Jews, there was a few sieges that took place. And one took place in about 66 AD in which uh, the, uh, the, the general, Cestius Gallus, first besieged the city. And he came and he was going to destroy it, but then he ended up backing off. And at that point, the, the, the early Christians realized, we just saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies. It is time now that that general has, has backed away for us to get out. And so from about 66 to 68 AD, they were able to get out of the city. Again, they went and fled, uh, church history tells us, to Pella. Interestingly, that very name, Pella, was adopted by some Dutch Christians who came over in the 1800s in persecution in Holland and they immigrated to the U.S. and they founded a city in Iowa named Pella because they believed they were following in the footsteps of those ancient Christians, finding a place for refuge. Now, why did Jesus tell his followers to flee Jerusalem? Well, it's because the destruction and the suffering was going to be great. But even in this, friends, we need to see the heart of Jesus as he tells his followers with compassion to flee the city, to get out. Danger's coming, persecution's coming, suffering is coming, and he tells them that they have permission. In fact, he instructs them to leave the city. The church of Jesus Christ were not the ones that were intended for the punishment of the Lord. It was the Jewish nation. And that leads us to the next specific detail that Jesus gives. Not only is the, in, the guidance in light of the destruction, but thirdly, the reason for Jerusalem's destruction. He gives the reason for this destruction. Why would Israel be made desolate? Why would the temple be desolate? Why would it be destroyed? And why should the followers get out of town? Look at verse 22. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Here he gives the reason for, or you could translate because these are days of vengeance. This is God's vengeance, God's wrath that he was bringing upon his chosen people. He was inflicting vengeance on them for their sin and for their rebellion. He was fulfilling all that he had prophesied against them in the Old Testament. These, the curses of the covenant from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 were continuing to fall upon them. Ultimately, it was the Romans who destroyed the city. It was by their hand that the city was raised, but it was God who brought it about. We cannot fail to see the divine initiative, the divine hand behind the Roman army. It was days of vengeance, not the vengeance of the Roman army. It was the vengeance of God. This phrase, days of vengeance, is used throughout the Old Testament in various contexts to describe God's judgment that's unleashed upon a rebellious people. 
It could be in times it refers to his people. In other times it refers to Babylon. And sometimes it refers to all the nations in a future day. But this idea of days of vengeance means that it is a time in which God's wrath is unleashed. It's important to see that Jerusalem's destruction was not just the result of human factors. It was the result of divine initiative, the result of a holy God bringing wrath upon sin. But why did it demand his vengeance? Why? What rebellion was so bad? What did they do that deserved such unleashing of wrath? It was because they had rejected Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus made this clear two chapters earlier. You can flip over with me. Luke 19. Luke 19, look in verse 41. Beginning in verse 41, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, look at what it says, verse 41, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because look at this you did not know the time of your visitation why would these horrific things come upon the jewish nation it's because they did not know the time of their visitation god had visited them through the person of jesus christ god was patient with them he sent Jesus Christ to show them light in the midst of their darkness, to lead them in the path of peace. And yet, they completely missed it. They refused to repent. They hardened their hearts. They refused to humble themselves and to repent. They didn't want to confess their sins. They didn't want to renounce it all and follow Jesus. They wanted to cling on to their own agenda for their lives. They wanted to be Lord. They didn't want Jesus to be Lord. This humble carpenter from Nazareth, we won't submit to him. And therefore, they would receive the retribution of God because of their unbelief. But again, let's notice the context of this wrath. What is the heart of God? Is he the happy tyrant we see in Jesus Christ the, the literal incarnation of God as he declares this wrath here in Luke 19 over the city that, that this was going to come on them because they missed the visitation. He is saying it and declaring it through tears. He's weeping over this destruction. He's weeping over the wrath that would come. His heart was breaking for this very people that he came to save, this people that he came to give his life for. But they refused. It gave him no delight to see Israel hardened in, in her sin. And yet, is he going to relent of the judgment? No, judgment must come. His righteous character demands it. And friends, this is a picture of the heart of God for sinners today. God must punish sin. God must punish the unrighteous. His holy character demands it. 
And yet it is as if through tears that he is calling to the world, calling to the nations, that all would repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ, the very one that he has sent, that they might be rescued from their sin. Ezekiel 18, verse 23 says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? What's God's heart for broken, rebellious sinners. It's ultimately that they would turn from their sin, that they might live. And so friends, today as we read this text in Luke 21 of the vengeance of God that was prophesied by Jesus to be poured out on the Jewish nation, it's a picture of God's vengeance for us. Again, as I said, this event in 70 AD is a warning, is a preview of what will take place in a future day. God's wrath will be poured out on all the nations, on all those who reject Christ. This event upon the Jewish people was a picture of that. And just as certain as the wrath would come several decades after Jesus made this prophecy, so too it will come to this planet again. We don't know exactly when the final reckoning will be here, but we can trust Jesus' word that it will come. He is indeed a true prophet of God. This first prophecy came true. We can trust that the final one will come true as well. And so we see, we've seen now three specifics of the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's go on and look at the fourth specific that Jesus gives us that enables us to trust his word, and that is the suffering in Jerusalem's destruction. The suffering in Jerusalem's destruction. Verse 23, Jesus breaks out in an exclamation of sorrow for those who will undergo the great suffering of Jerusalem's de devastation and desolation. Verse 23 says, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Friends, normally, even as we celebrated this morning, Life, the birth of a child, is a wonderful blessing for which we celebrate and puts a smile on our face as we think of a new baby coming into the world. And yet, the context of this sort of judgment means that everything is flipped. What is normally a great time of celebration is now a time of great sorrow. Because women who are pregnant or nursing children, those who are, who are young, are the most vulnerable are those that may suffer the most under a time of judgment, and in this case, a time of war, a time of bloodshed. And so Jesus says, alas, or woe. It's, a, it's, it's an explanation of, of, of sorrow. His heart is breaking for those in that time period who are bearing children. God's, time, God's wrath upon Israel will be great. Jesus says, why does he say that? For there will be great distress upon the earth and upon this people. Now, I like the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bible translation here where the ESV says, for there will be great distress upon the earth. I believe that it's accurate to translate it as land. There will be great distress upon the land and the reason for that is because what he says next, wrath against this people. He's talking about a distress upon the land of Israel and distress upon this people. 
He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about Israel. And therefore, he's talking about the land of Israel. Now, friends, this suffering that Jesus predicted, this suffering was completely fulfilled. The first century historian from which we get much data about this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Josephus, first century historian Josephus, gives us many insights into the suffering of the Jewish people that they endured in the siege of Jerusalem. Most primarily, for the longest extent, it was hunger. As I said, the siege wall was put around and no food was allowed in. And so people began to slaughter animals. They began to eat whatever they could get food on. As food ran out, other evils began to surface. People that normally wouldn't do such things began doing barbaric things in order to appease their hunger. Stealing was rampant. If they happened to see that a, a house had a locked door, they would, they would know that that meant there was food inside, and so they would bang it down and beat the people until they got the food. Mothers would take food away from their children because they were so hungry. And people turned into ravenous anim animals, eating dirt, eating leather from their sandals. And they were driven to do horrific things. There's even a reported case of cannibalism inside the walls of Jerusalem. And of course, if someone says, that's it, I've had enough, I'm getting out of here, and they actually tried to flee the city, the Romans would then take that escapee and crucify them publicly as an example and try to get them to break their will that the Jews might surrender early before they all die. But of course, that wasn't the case. They were too stubborn. Jerusalem, or Deuteronomy 28, one of the curses of the covenant describes this very reality, that they will be driven into their cities and that they will be turned into people, the most refined man, it says, and the most refined woman who would never think of even getting dirty suddenly becomes to do horrific things because of the curses of the covenant and the hunger that they experience in the midst of a siege. And this is why Jesus says woe for the vulnerable. This is why Jesus says woe for those who were bearing children in that day. Horrible distress, great distress, he says, will come upon this people and upon the land. He laments it. But take note, friends, he also predicts it. And that's what we're looking at. He, his prophecy came completely true. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And in every detail, he is proving himself to be the true prophet. But there's a fifth aspect that Jesus reveals in this text about the destruction of Jerusalem that we need to look at. And that is, fifthly, the details of Jerusalem's destruction. We've been looking at broad strokes about how Jerusalem was destroyed, that it was destroyed, but Jesus gives us some details in the first part of verse 24. And particularly, he says three things. Look at it with me, verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword, one, and be led captive among all nations, two, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, three. So let's look at those three things. Did those happen in 70 AD? Did his prophecy prove true? First, fall by the edge of the sword. We talked about the fact that the Romans starved out, tried to starve out Israel. But it became clear that the Jews would not surrender. They were going to would rather die of hunger inside the walls than be surrendered to the Romans. And so the Roman general Titus concluded that he needed to break into the walls and needed to destroy the Jewish people 
before that final death happened. And so they began attacking hand to hand. They did this. They broke into the walls on the northern side of the city in late April of 70 AD. It took several weeks to kind of continue to break in and get through the city. They set fire to much of the city. And then they eventually were able to break into the temple compound, the, the temple mount, and began to, uh, that's where the, the Jews had all retreated to. That was their most uh, solidified fortress. And they, as they broke in, the Romans began to kill the rebellious Jews. And Josephus records this. He says, while the temple blazed, the victors otherwise known as the Romans, plundered everything that fell in their way and slaughtered wholesale all who were caught. No pity was shown for age, no reverence for rank. Children and graybeards, laity and priests alike were massacred. Josephus says that over a million Jews were killed in the siege of Jerusalem. Modern historians put the estimate lower but whatever the number, the point is that the Jews were indeed slaughtered by the Romans. And so Jesus' prediction here, that they would fall by the edge of the sword, came completely true. There's a second detail Jesus gives, that they would be led captive among all the nations. That they would be led captive among all the nations. After the Roman army destroyed all those who resisted, they captured and enslaved the remaining people. Josephus records that almost 100,000 people were taken off and they were spread around the Roman Empire. They, they were spread out among all the nations. Some 700 were brought back to Rome as trophies of war. And so they were paraded through the streets of Rome, shown as their, uh, that they were the victors. Is paraded along with uh, the menorah that was taken out of the temple and the table of the, the bread of God's presence that the Romans took right out of the temple. These were items that, that only the, the priests would see, and now they were paraded and mocked before all of Rome. In fact, that very reality is engraved on an archaeological stone that we found that shows the Romans carting off the menorah to Rome. But again, Jesus' prediction here in Luke 21, given in 33 AD, was absolutely perfectly fulfilled in 70 AD. But finally, he says this, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. This statement refers to the fact that Jerusalem will come under Gentile control. And more than that, they wouldn't just like become the rulers of Jerusalem, they would crush Jerusalem. The imagery of being trampled underfoot is graphic. To have one person trampling another person, it communicates total domination. It communicates violence. And Jesus predicted that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Gentiles and remain in control of the city. And again, friends, this is exactly what happened in 70 AD. Rome absolutely crushed the Jewish people. The Jews were proud and defiant, had an air of independence, believing that they were God's chosen people and that God would rescue them. They wrongly believed that Zechariah 14 would be fulfilled in that day. Zechariah 14 talks about a time when the nations gather around Jerusalem and they probably thought, oh, this might be it. Because in that prophecy, 
the Lord himself descends upon the Mount of Olives and saves Israel. But that didn't take place in 70 AD. That wasn't to be fulfilled. That still awaits a future day. In this day, God's vengeance was poured out. And they were trampled underfoot. Now we've talked about the human casualties, but there was also just general structural ca casualties of the city. The city was, initially Titus went in and was just going to uh, 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 kill the perpetrators. He's just going to try to kill the rebellious ones and try to leave the city, leave the temple and just kind of let, let it be. But once there continued to be opposition after opposition, he finally concluded that he needed to raise this city. He needed to flatten it. And that's exactly what they did. They set fire to everything, set fire to the temple. They had to pick the gold out that had melted there in the midst of the rocks. Josephus says this, that all the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's exactly what happened. Jesus accurately predicted the destruction of Jerusalem down to every detail. Now, friends, from our vantage point, we can look back at those first century Jews. They were so stubborn. They were so holding on that they endured, had to go through this destruction, this suffering. And we can wonder, why didn't they repent? Why didn't they turn? They had plenty of warning. Why would they continue in this if they knew that God's wrath was coming? But it's only clear to us today, right? Because we can look back and see that it actually took place. And so we go, of course you should be turning because it's actually going to happen. The problem is, they should have trusted Jesus' word just as much as we trust the history books. We should trust the future prophecy of our Lord as exactly what will happen, just as much as we read of what actually already took place. Jesus' prophecy was just as sure, just as certain as history itself. And they should have believed it, but they failed to do so. They missed the time of their visitation. But friends, here's the sad part, is that unfortunately, the same thing happens to people today. People today refuse to believe Jesus' word about a future judgment that still is coming. They refuse to believe that they need to repent. They refuse to believe that they need to change their ways at all. And so they continue on in self-reliance, in self-defiance. But mark my words, there will be a day when we can look back and the very future judgment will be history and we can look back and say, why didn't people in 2023, 20, why didn't they repent? Why didn't they turn if they knew the judgment was coming? Why didn't they change when they still had the chance? And so it's a warning to all of us to all who are hearing my voice this morning, to know that there is a future judgment coming, that God is holy and righteous and he has called all of us to live according to his standard, 
but we fall short, each and every one of us. We might have a lot of good deeds that we think we've done, but our deeds are as filthy rags and they fall so short of what God requires. And therefore, there will be a day when there is a reckoning for each and every one of us. We must stand face to face before our creator and give an account for how we have lived. And yet, the time that we are living and breathing today is a time of grace. It's a time of patience. That this very God who would rightly would punish each and every one of us for our, our heinous sins before a holy God is giving time, is being patient. Just as Jesus gave this prophecy in 33 AD and the judgment didn't come for, for several decades later, God is a patient God. And he calls out through tears that sinners would turn to him, would turn to Christ and repent and not continue in their rebellious ways. And so friends, do not harden your hearts this morning. Know that that future judgment is coming. It is just as certain as the events that it took place yesterday. God will not be mocked, but he has provided a way out, a way of refuge, a way of safety, a way of salvation, and it's through his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be destroyed, but will have eternal life. That is the gift. That is the offer. That is the call that our weeping God makes to sinners everywhere. And I pray that you hear that this morning. Jesus was making this very clear for Israel in that day. We need to see this as the preview that it is and take heed. But there's a final part of Jesus' prophecy that we need to look at. The sixth specific of the Jerusalem's destruction and that is the reversal of Jerusalem's destruction. He foretold the reversal of Jerusalem's destruction. And he gives this at the end of verse 24, it says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will not remain under Gentile rule forever. Jerusalem will not look destroyed and trampled forever. It will be restored and Israel will be revived spiritually. How do we know this? We know it because of many, many passages of Scripture, but we know it particularly also from this last phrase in verse 24. That's what is inherent in the adverb until. Until means it doesn't go on forever. Until describes the stopping point. Why else would he say until if there was no stopping point? If Jerusalem was forever decimated, if Israel was forever cast off and he was never going to revive Israel and never going to bring them back into their land or their city, why would he write the word until? Why would he speak it? Now many struggle what to do with this. If your theological system has Israel cast off forever as a nation, then this is hard to reconcile. But I believe that God in this age is dealing with Israel through individuals. He's calling individuals into the church that they might be saved. But there will be a future day when God will deal with Israel as a nation, when God will restore them as a people. 
And as is revealed in this passage, it will be when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles refers to a period of history in which multiple things are happening. And this describes our time, okay? The times of the Gentiles, we're living in them. During the times of the Gentiles, Jerusalem is under Gentile control and is not yet restored to its formal gl former glory. Now, you might say, well, but I thought in 1948, Israel became a nation. They've, and then in, uh, I believe it was the 67 war, they be captured back to uh, Jerusalem, got to the, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And it's true that they did recapture some of Jerusalem, but it's not completely theirs. And there's no peace that is there. As we all well know in the last 24 hours. But not only is Jerusalem still under Gentile control, but what's also true during this times of the Gentiles is that Israel still rejects her Messiah. Israel is hardened against Jesus. And also, what happens in this times of the Gentiles is the gospel is now going to the nations. What is the Great Commission? It's go and make disciples of all the nations. The gospel is going out. It's started in Israel and it's spreading. It's going to the nations. And so right now, during this time, Israel is hardened in their, uh, their hearts towards Jesus, hardened towards the Lord. Jerusalem is still, and the nation of Israel is still uh, uh, no longer, is not freed, is not living in peace. And the gospel is going out to all the nations. But the way that things are right now is not the way it's going to continue to be to the end. There's going to be a change. And Paul understood this. Paul understood what Jesus was saying, and he notes this in Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, verse 25 to 27 says this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until, you see that word until again? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, quoting the Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The fullness of the Gentiles must come in. The fullness of the redeemed Gentiles must be saved. And at that time, then all Israel will be saved because the deliverer will come from Zion. Jesus will return and he will clean Israel. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The new covenant will be applied to Israel. I believe Paul here in Romans 11 is picking up exactly what Jesus was saying in Luke 21. And as we know, this is true right now. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. They're cold to the gospel. They reject Jesus Christ, but this won't last forever. It will last only until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, which means that God will have redeemed those whom he has chosen out of, out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And it's at that point that God will bring about the salvation of Israel. Jesus will return and he will set up his nation. Zechariah chapter 12 prophesies that day. And as Jesus returns, it says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And will they continue to reject him? Will they breathe curses at him? No, on that day when they see him whom they have pierced, they will weep for him as, they weep for, as one weeps for an only son. Their hearts will be broken. They will be spiritually regenerated and renewed and they will see all of their sins. They will confess them and they will repent and they will turn to Jesus, their Messiah. This repentance and revival of Israel will accompany 
a return to the land of Israel. God will make that patch of dirt central to his plans once again. And this is found, again, all over the Old Testament. I'm going to take you to one passage this morning as we close out to see this connection between revival of Israel and return to the land. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. This is a passage that's often turned to to describe the new covenant that we share in right now, which is true. We do share in the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. We have the Spirit of God. But the promise of the new covenant, the pr promise of regeneration was, was originally given to Israel. Verses, look at verse 21. It just for uh, a context, it says, Ezekiel 36, 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So the, the concern here is Israel had, had was exiled, they'd been judged because they profaned the name of God. And so verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. Stop there for a minute. Do you see what is motivating God? It is God's own holiness. God is staking his character. He's saying, I'm going to do this for my sake. But what is he going to do? Look at verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and I will, a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Stop there for a minute. So we have God saying I'm gonna work for my name's sake, I'm going to bring you from the nations. And here he says, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to regenerate you. I'm going to make you spiritually new, something different you didn't have before. You're going to actually walk in my ways because my spirit is going to be in you. But look at the connection with the land going on in verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. What land was that? That's the land of Israel. There's, there's actual geographical borders to this land that is specified in the promise given to the fathers in Genesis. You can go out and you can see exactly what those borders are. This land, he says, you will dwell in the land when you're regenerated and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate, see that word, shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around, you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. 
Friends, do you see the connection that there is this promise that was given and this could be repeated in passage after passage that God made a promise that just the very nation that got sent out of Israel is gonna be welcomed back in and there's gonna be a total transformation. Now some would say, well, but didn't they enter back into their land after the exile? You know, Nehemiah and all those and Ezra. Well, yes, they did, but what we see is that they weren't spiritually regenerated. They weren't changed people and they're not living securely. All these blessings haven't happened because they were still the rotten people that went into exile because they crucified Jesus and they still remain that way today. A partial hardening has still been upon Israel. What Ezekiel understood and his people would have hoped for is still the case today. Israel will receive this when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And friends, this is Again, why they rejected the Messiah. They are not fundamentally changed. And this is where Israel is today, that they have rejected Christ. And yet we must pray for them. Pray that God would open the eyes of the blind, open Israel's eyes, even through the conflict that they find themselves in today. May God use this to open their blind eyes that they might see that salvation is found in Jesus alone, in Yeshua Mashiach. But friends, because of their initial sin of rejecting Jesus, the door of salvation has been opened to us. And we can rejoice in that and celebrate that today, that we have salvation. We cannot celebrate arrogantly. We must celebrate humbly, recognizing it's only because of the grace of God. Now, we've looked at several of these pieces of Christ's prophecy this morning. Each one of them happened exactly as he said He is indeed the true prophet of God, He is the supreme prophet, He is the God in human flesh, and therefore all mankind must listen to him and submit to him. But more than that, we should love him. We should love him, why? Because he gave himself for us. He died upon the cross that we don't have to suffer the wrath that is due to us. And so I pray that each one of you here would know him intimately, and if you don't know him, then please come talk to me after the service or talk to somebody else around you. We'd love for you to be able to know this Jesus and to be saved from the wrath to come. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our God, we thank you for your word that is so clear. We praise you, Jesus, that you are the great prophet, that this text has been recorded for us, has been preserved through the centuries, that we might read it today in our language and be able to rejoice and say, yes, Jesus, you are the true prophet of God. You declare the words of life. We will go nowhere else but to you. And Father, I pray that's the case for everyone here this morning, that they would hear the words of Jesus, that they would repent and to believe in him and recognize that there is, there is life found in no one else. There is not life found in living their own way according to their own desires. There is not life found in any other religious system. There is only life in bowing the knee before King Jesus. And I pray, oh God, that you would please bring that about in their heart and life. We thank you for this word and we ask that you would impress its truths on our souls and our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.